People need hope. People need hope. So many people feel hopeless. They feel like nothing will ever change. Like they feel like it won't get better. And so a lot of times what happens is people are kind of almost so far gone at times where they'll hear some good news. Like maybe it's the gospel or maybe it's something else. Just they'll still hear good news in general and it won't feel like good news to them because for so many people, they're so used to things being so miserable that they sort of lost faith in the idea that it can be anything other than what it is. That's why every single week here at this church, because we want to fight against that here, that's why every single week at this church, we take some time and we pray for one another. And, we, and I know sometimes it may feel awkward to raise your hand and lift up these situations that seem impossible, but we want to agree together on the situations that seem impossible. We pray for the reconciliation of marriages. We pray for healing, even when the doctor's report says that healing is impossible. We believe that we serve a God who is not bound by human boundaries. Who's not intimidated by our anger and our frustration. Who does not give up on us when we question him. Or when we take matters into our own hands. And make things worse. At this church, we believe that impossible is fertile soil for God. He loves it. How it's impossible? Let me move. This is ground for me to work. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to actually read a pretty extensive section of Scripture, kind of picking up right where we left off at the very end of chapter 3 in Romans. Uh, and then I'll big portion of the way through chapter 4. And in chapter 4 particularly, Paul is giving a bit of a commentary, a bit of an explanation of Genesis 15. So in Hebrew culture, in around the second century, so this would have been after Romans was written, the rabbis developed something called Midrash. And Midrash was a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, but it was more than just a question of, well, what is this scripture saying? But it actually asked also the question of what is the saying to us today? It was said that in that day that a text that could not be interpreted to actually meet a practical need of the day was dead. Karen Armstrong talks about that in her book about the Bible. Now that's not to say that any of it is dead. It's actually to say that all of it has life in it. We just need to pull that out of it. So Romans 4 would actually be an example for what a midrash would one day look like. It's Paul placing us in the story of Abraham and showing how Genesis 15 is alive and how this this ancient, ancient text, Genesis 15, actually speaks to the needs and addresses the needs that we're coming into in Romans 4 and how that actually goes even beyond that even to our lives today. It's Paul placing his hearers in the church of Rome, this church that is both Jew and Gentile, and who are struggling, quite frankly, to get along, into the story of Abraham, and into the story of Sarah, his wife, and the impossible promises of God that were given to them. Now, the story of Abraham is a story of hope. It's a story about love. It's a story about doubt. It's a story about taking matters into your own hands 
screwing up a lot of things, and then God's still showing up anyway. It's the story of me. It's the story of all of us. It's the story of what God wants to do in all of us, his people, his church, despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, despite our losses, despite our disappointments. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through quite a bit of it today, and then we're going to read the rest of it next week. But we won't have time to go through it line by line like we did last week. So today we're going to do our best uh, to capture the heart of all that he's saying in this section. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 27, and we're going to go through 4, verse 16. So if you'd follow along with me on the screen with this one, starting in uh, verse 27, it says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Remember, this is just after the huge piece on justification that we talked about last week. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the God of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Now, we we talked a bit about the promise of David just really quick uh, two weeks ago, so we're not going to spend much time on him today. Uh, But I do want to point out The way that Paul brings us back once again to David to remind us of just how big the arms of grace really, really are. Moving on to verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? You see this word often, counted. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after... But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of his righteousness that he held by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised 
but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, this is a lot about circumcision. So over and over again, I know it's a little awkward to talk about. Uh, I'm glad that Pastor Austin framed all that for you before. But this last line, before I go on to the next part, this is directly written to the Jews because circumcision was their thing. And thank God it was only their thing. But um, Paul's saying, is it not, the Jews were asking Paul, well, is it enough that we're a Jew? Is it enough that we're circumcised? And he says, you know what? It's actually not enough. It's great, but you also need to follow in the footsteps of Abraham in the way that you have faith. That is very, very key. Now, moving on to verse 13, he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, or that, that, uh, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be the guarantee to his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I know that was a lot, but we we won't read the whole thing again today, so that'll be good. I wanted to just frame all of it for you. You can just read it, um, and now it's read. So last week, we pointed out the way that Paul really builds an argument sort of throughout the first three chapters of the book of Romans about how man has not been faithful to God, but how God has still been faithful to man. And from Romans 3.21 all the way through to the end here of Romans 4, what we find is not simply a message about how God has forgiven our sins. God has forgiven our sins. It's awesome that he did that. But the message that we get here is not only that, but also that God has truly done what he has promised that he would do, that he promised Abraham he would do. So God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and he was faithful to his promise to Israel. He has rescued us delivered us, and even redeemed us. We talked about that last week. There's two very big words we've sort of been talking through in this, uh, in this first, these last few weeks. The last week, the word was redemption. God has actually redeemed us. God has actually, through Jesus, done something that has put us back to where he created us to be, where he intended us to be. Then the second word is the word we've been on basically this whole series, and that's the word Justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. It means that because of what Jesus did, God is able to look at you and say, you are righteous. You are right. Now, here, Paul shifts his focus just a little bit to show us how God has done this for so many others and how he will, in fact, do it for you and me as well. And the key word is faith. Faith. In 3.27, Romans 3.27, Paul says that a law of works will get you nowhere, but rather you need a law of faith. A law of works will do nothing more than demonstrate for you your inability to keep that law. And if you're judged by that law that you're not able to keep, well, then you and I were both in really big trouble. Why? Because we did not keep the law. 
So Paul tells us, if you have faith in Jesus, then when you, you will be justified because what will happen is when that judgment comes, he will be, it will be Jesus who you're going to be judged according to. So instead of what you've done, you're going to be judged according to what Jesus did, if you have faith in Jesus. But in verse 30, he says something that would have meant a lot to his readers, even though it means almost nothing to us. He says that God will justify the circumcised by faith, and he will justify the uncircumcised through faith. Now, these two Greek words are very similar, but they're just slightly different, the word by and the word uh, through. And it basically is just saying the same thing. What it's saying is, by faith, the Jews, the circumcised, were saved. And through that same faith will also be what saves those who are not circumcised. Through the promise that the Jews were given initially, now the whole world has access to. He says, the process in which Jesus justifies you looks the same no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter what culture you were raised in, or even what laws you kept and what laws you have not kept. So we we did talk about circumcision a few weeks ago. Uh, Basically, just to make it really, really simple, it was an identifier for the Jews that they're set apart for God. And uh, it was very important in their culture. And if it's so important in their culture, that would make this actually a huge statement. Because what this is saying is not that circumcision is bad. And it's not that circumcision is good. What it's saying is that God meets the uncircumcised right where they are. And he meets the circumcised right where they are. And if they have faith, he will justify them no matter where they are. See, Paul actually talks in this book a lot about diversity. Now, obviously, he's writing to a very diverse church in Rome, and in all likelihood, they were not very happy about that. He talks about the Jews and the Gentiles, the circumcised, the uncircumcised. He talks about male and female. And when he does that, and he makes these types of statements, he says things like, well, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. But obviously, when you become a Christian, you don't stop becoming a male or a female, You're still part of whatever family that you're a part of. You're still Jewish or you're not Jewish. The point is not to abandon the parts of you that make you feel different. The point is that God meets you in those differences. And he actually wants to leave you, believe it or not, in some of those differences. If God thought that circumcision was important for everybody then he would have met them where they are, justified them, and then told them to go get circumcised. He didn't do that. But if he thought that circumcision wasn't important at all, he would have just thrown the whole thing out. But for Abraham, God actually gave him this as the sign of of a covenant that, that he made with him. But Paul's very, very, very clear about this, and this is very important. God justified Abraham before He was circumcised before. It would have been, um, it it wasn't like he had to do this thing and then God would meet him there. And that's how most people in that day believed. He says that Abraham was counted to be righteous before the circumcision. Now the implications are phenomenal to that and the reason for it is, is even bigger. We get the reason in the very next verse. It says, well, why did that happen? It happened so that... God can create a family in Abraham 
And Abraham is the father of this family, and there are both uncircumcised and circumcised in this family. So God creates a family in Abraham. Abraham is the father of it, and God will ultimately use this diverse family to be what changes the world. That is the church. It's full of a lot of different people who look a lot different from each other, who are taught different things, who live in different neighborhoods, have different social statuses, some have money, some rely on the generosity of others for their next meal. But they're all children of God. Some are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are black, some are white. God knows that it is our differences that actually make us beautiful. This is why we, when we talk about identity a lot, well, we, 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 we try to re- remember that our identity is found in that we're all image bearers of the same God and there are so many facets of God. So that's why we can embrace those things while realizing that our identity ultimately is still in Christ. Because the image of God is so diverse and that's, that's absolutely amazing. But our identity is found in the fact that we're all bought by the same blood of the lamb. So our differences don't define us, but our differences do equip us to do something different than perhaps anybody else could do who didn't have the upbringing and the life that you had, the cultural background that you had, the education that you had. Like for some of us, it's college. For others, it's just the streets. For others, there's just mentors in their lives. And all of our minds begin to be shaped in different ways by the way that we were raised, which means that the body of Christ uh, is full of people who all have different things to bring to the table. It's very clear that people who speak a certain language are going to be a lot more effective in reaching people who speak that language than somebody like me who only speaks English. Right? That's why we talked at the very beginning of the series how Paul, um, we talked about how uh, Paul, his Hebrew name, uh, it says it in Acts, that his Hebrew name was Saul, and his Greek name, so his Greek name was Paul, his Hebrew name is Saul. It's, the, the two na- words mean the same thing, but, but, they mean, but they're in different languages. So it says like this, Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians, he says, I became all things to all people, so I may be able to win some of them. Paul was able to be both Paul and Saul because Paul was a Roman citizen who was raised Jewish and grew up to be a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he was able to do that. But for you and I and the church and what we're trying to communicate here, if we have a chance at all of reaching all people, it's going to take all of us. And we're going to need to come together and let it be our differences among us that allow us to usher in different people into the kingdom of heaven in the way that they need that ushering to be done. So we celebrate diversity and we not only embrace it, but we should also be intentional to cultivate it and cultivate environments that endorse it. I love the fact, this is, we talked a lot about Ihad a few weeks ago when we were on the, um, on the, the exchange. I love the fact that Romans 3.30 kind of drops that in. Paul says, since God is one, which is, which he's in Greek right now, but he's quoting a passage from Hebrew, or from Deuteronomy, and any time a Jewish audience would hear the phrase, God is one, they immediately would go to Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. God is Ehad. That's, it's the Shema. That's, that's where they would go. In, but it's not one as in like the number one, the first number. It's all alone one. It's one as in we are unified. We are all in this together. It's unity in the midst of the diversity that we all bring. 
So in the Shema, it's describing God. Here, God is one, but we know God is more than one. In Genesis, it says, let us make in our image. And then, of course, we know now God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is a community God. And all of that matters. So it's no accident that Paul drops this little quote right here in the middle of this passage about how we're all different. But we're all one. So God is one. And Jesus Through Jesus, God justifies his church in the things that make them different. So you have a college degree. I declare you righteous. You have a GED. I declare you righteous. You dropped out of school in second grade to help when dad took off. I declare you righteous. You dropped out of school in seventh grade because you just decided you didn't want to do it anymore. But you've come to terms with the fact that Jesus still believes in you and you still have better days ahead of you. I declare you righteous. Broken home, broken family, righteous. Wealthy home, put together family, righteous. Wealthy home, devastated family that looks great on the outside, but you cry yourself to sleep every night because all the money in the world doesn't do a thing for you. When you come to terms with the fact that Jesus wants to work a miracle in that family, and he wants to work in your home and work in your life, I declare you righteous. That's justification. You're declared righteous. But I love the way that Ehad is not just It is not just diversity. It is unity in diversity. It's unity in the things that make us different come together to show us, okay, this is who we actually are. I cannot be it alone. You cannot be it alone. And what Paul says here is just that. And the one thing that brings us all together is that Jesus Christ has justified us. So we can be different in every single way, but the one way we cannot be different is we must have faith in Jesus Christ. We're not all supposed to be the same, but the same blood the Lamb does cover us. So in Romans 4.3, Paul quotes one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. And then really the rest of chapter 4 is sort of that midrash. It's him sorting out what does this mean? What it meant for Abraham, what it means for Israel, and now what it means for us today. So the verse that he quotes is Genesis 15, 6, and it says he, he being Abraham, believed the Lord, and then because of that God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So first, it's very important that we understand the story of Abraham, who he was, what he believed about God, and what he believed that God was going to do. And I'm going to try to walk through this for you just a little bit. First of all, God first told Abraham to leave his homeland, and he promised him this place called Canaan. Abraham and his wife uh, set out for this place, and his wife Sarah had no children, and they were very, very old. But God gave him a promise. They went after it, right? But then God made another promise to Abraham. Not only that he would have a child when he's like super, super old, but that he himself would actually be the father of many, many nations, which is a huge, huge promise for an old man with a barren wife. It's impossible. God took Abraham outside and he showed him the stars. Do you know this moment? 
he shows Abraham the stars and he says, Abraham, can you count the stars? Look to heaven. Can you see it? Can you number them? Well, what's God doing when he's doing this? He's showing Abraham his glory. If you see the progression of how this works in Romans, earlier we talked about the glory of God and how people, when they would look to heaven, especially uh, in the ancient world, they would see the stars and they would see how many stars there were and they would be so overwhelmed by how big God is and how small we are in comparison that it would weigh them down. They would literally have to catch their breath. They'd be like, oh my gosh, this is too big. This is too big. I am too small. Right? So God takes him into a moment like that and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do something in you that is so big. I'm going to do something with you that is so big. I'm going to use you to fulfill the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the entire earth with the glory of God. So God says, in the same way that you can't number them, you can look to the sky, you don't even know how many there are, cannot, they're countless, so who could number them? And in that same way, so shall your offspring be. He's saying, you childless old man, it will not stay this way forever. You will have a son, and you will be the centerpiece of what I do with history. You will be one of the, one of the most centric parts of all of it. You will not be forgotten, and great things will come. And that um, is what leads us to that moment in Genesis 15, uh, 15, 6. Even, even though what God told Abraham was basically impossible, what happened was Abraham believed God. He believed that God would do what he said that he would do, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But this word counted is very important to us. It was very important to Abraham, but it's also very important to us. Because Paul actually uses this word a lot during this passage. I was trying to point it out to you as we were reading it. Uh, it's important to understand what he's saying with it. He's not, it's not saying like, I'm just considering you righteous. It's actually like an, it's an accounting term. It's really a term, another way to explain justification in a slightly different way. It should be viewed like this. God, through Christ, when you have faith in Christ, takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it in your account. When you have faith in Jesus, in, in what he did on the cross when he died for you, when we have faith that his blood is enough for us, what God does is he takes that righteousness, he puts it in your account. And you might be here and you say, okay, I, and this is why this is so significant, because we don't always feel righteous. I don't always feel righteous. And you may think, okay, my, count, my account is empty. I've done so many things wrong. God, is, um, God has got to have given up on me by now. I've drained the account. I've spent it. It's hopeless. But look to Jesus. Let him make that deposit in you. And he alone will make you righteous. But church, the devil works in lies. I've been saying this for years. The devil's only tool that he really can use against you is lies. He can try to convince you of something, whether it's true or not, he's going to use it against you. Whether you've done it or not, he'll use it against you. And he'll always make it feel worse than whatever it really is. He wants to get in your mind even after you are saved. Even after you are declared righteous. And he's going to try to convince you that you are not righteous. He will try to convince you that the things that you've done have drained that account. And because of that, you're not going to always feel like you're righteous. I love the way that uh, Pastor, Pastor Kevin says, Pastor Kevin Barry says this. He, he, I heard him talking about this, and he was saying this. He's like, you could be poor your whole life, 
right? And you, you live your whole life poor, and then one day somebody just comes up and they just say, there's a million dollars in your account. There it is. You have a million dollars in your account now. The next day, you may still feel poor, but you're not poor. And it's like that sometimes with salvation. Sometimes God does something and we don't actually feel like we're any different. But we are different. And now, somebody puts that in your account, now what do you have to decide? You have to decide, do I live like my life has changed? Do I start to be generous? Because obviously now there's something to be generous with. Do I begin to take care of my family better? Do I take care of myself a little bit better than I have in the past? Because obviously that's possible now. You, you've probably, like me, read an awful lot of those stories um, about people who have received an inheritance and they didn't even know they received it. Like, uh, they lived their whole lives not even knowing that their accounts were full and that they could be anything that they wanted to be and uh, do anything that they wanted to do, but they didn't even know it. I've even read about people who it's gotten so bad where they become homeless. They've lost their families. They've lost everything. And the whole time, while their world is just falling apart, they never knew what was in their account. We don't want that. Jesus wants you to live a righteous life. And he's put all that righteousness in your account. Now we just need to use it. So there, there's just a couple significant things that, he, that we need to point out in this reading. And next week we're going to really continue on Abraham uh, and everything that it relates to the resurrection. But from this set of scriptures, there's two things that I don't want us to miss. First is the concept that when you work and are paid a wage... For your work, that is not a gift. You've earned it. That's not a gift. Now, this is actually the very first thing that Paul says after telling us that Abraham was justified by faith. It does not go on to say that work is bad, which we sometimes let it say because we like to think the law is bad. It doesn't say that it's bad to earn a wage. In life, work does matter. If life didn't, if, if work didn't matter, then the, the world would be hell because nobody would be taking care of it. But the point is that even though work does matter, it is not, there, there's no amount of work that you can do that will actually get you in right standing with God. That's why God has to give it to you as a gift. Uh, Romans 3.24 says you're justified as a gift. But most people want to be successful. I, really, I was thinking about this a lot this week. I hope I can communicate this clearly. Most people want to be successful. They want to be financially stable. We want to have no, we can take care of our families. We can help others, right? That's awesome and it's important to do. But most of us work jobs. Most people work jobs in which the rate that the work they do is valued at a lower price than what it would ultimately take for them to have the life that they want. And so when you get that paycheck, I mean, hopefully you're, thinking, you're not thinking, man, this is grace. That's not what you think. Hopefully you still thank God. Thank God. Thank you for the opportunity to... to to provide for my family. Thank you for providing my family through this. But you're not looking at this paycheck that you've worked so hard for and be like, this is grace. Most of us don't think that. Because you know you've earned it. And because you know you've earned it, if it's not enough, then of course there's going to be what? A longing for more. And more and more. Because we're convinced that there's some like magical number that eventually if we can get here, we're going to be happy. But if you're in the earning business at all, you get to this place, right, where you 
where you realize I'm not earning enough. And if you feel like that, then before long, you're going to start to think there's an insufficiency here. And then before long, you're going to put in your mind, this insufficiency is me. I can't provide for my family the way that my family needs to be provided for because you're the earner. Because you're judging your own worth based on what you can or cannot produce. That's very dangerous. Because if a day does come when that flips and somehow the Lord blesses you or whatever, but you've always put guilt upon yourself your whole life for how much you don't earn, and then all of a sudden you are earning a life that you can pay the bills, you can get the bigger house, you can get the car, you can pay for everything your kids want, you can have the dreams. What is that going to do to your mind? You took the blame when it wasn't enough, when you, you let yourself be miserable. You're going to take the credit when you earn it, when it is enough, because you earned it. But Paul says that, he says, he's talking about the one who does not even believe, or who doesn't work at all, but believes. And that's not to say you should not work at all. What he is not, what he's saying is this. He's not telling you not to work. He is telling you that all the work in the world will not do it for you. And if you think that it will, then you are worse off than the person who does not work at all, but believes in Jesus who justifies the ungodly. Remember, Paul at the very beginning of this exchange in Romans 1.18 says what? The wrath of God was poured out against the ungodly, against the people who remove God. It's the root of many, many of these sins that we go on to list here. And now he's saying the moment you let God back in, Jesus justifies the ungodly. Christ's righteousness has been added to your account. And you may not always feel righteous. In fact, Anytime you look at your work and what you've done, it's quite possible that you're going to feel like you've fallen short, because all of us have, even after you're declared righteous. But I want to show you this with Abraham. See, Abraham believed that God truly would do it, that God would give him a child, that God would make him the father of a great nation, of many nations. God said it, Abraham believed it, right? Except for when he didn't. Because even faithful Abraham had moments in which his faith wavered. And the decisions that he made were terrible. God's covenant with Abraham is given in Genesis 15. It's one of the greatest moments in the entire Bible. People write books about this moment. We use it to build ourselves up and get psyched because God is going to be the one that's faithful to the covenant. We're going to talk about it last week because God loves us so much that he would take an old man in his 90s with a barren wife and create a family that would turn into a nation, who would turn into nations, who would turn back into a unified family, the church, and ultimately be the facilitators of redemption for the world. That's exciting. But it's just a few words on the page later. In Genesis 16, that we see Abraham and Sarah employing their servant Hagar to help God with their plan, to help God with his plan. They say, okay, Sarah is barren. Hagar is not. God says a nation will come from our family, so let's have Abraham sleep with Hagar, and the family will come from that. But notice this. He's in his 80s when this happens. They they didn't do this any time before. It wasn't like we're 55 and we're thinking we're not going to have kids. Time's running out. Let's do that. No, after God promises to do something, all of a sudden they think they need to help him. Suddenly God tells them you will have a child. And then they go and sleep with someone who can naturally conceive. Come on. That doesn't make any sense. But Abraham decides God needs help. So he sleeps with Hagar. She conceives, and when she conceives, Sarah begins to look down on her with contempt. 
Sarah gets bitter. She's angry. She blames Abraham, and she says, you know what, this is on you, even though it was kind of her idea, they, they kind of conjured it up together. She treats Hagar harshly and ultimately forces Hagar to run away. But in the same way that God promised to David uh, that the Messiah would come from him and then David did some screwed up stuff, uh, his gifts and call were not irrevocable and the Messiah still came from David, just like that, God still fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. And Sarah did eventually become pregnant. And Isaac was born, who would later be the father of Jacob, who later from that line would come David and later from that line would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the problem is, Now there were two sons. And from two different mothers, you have a son of promise and we'll call today a son of doubt. Of believing God could do it, just not that he could fully do it. And this is my conviction on this 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 week as I was reading this. I feel like a lot of us, a lot of people sort of live in the realm of Genesis 16 instead of Genesis 15. And this is what I mean by that. I feel like this is where we live. Like maybe we're not sleeping with the mistress. Hopefully none of us are sleeping with the mistress. Let's hope not. But we live in this place where we believe that we heard from God, but yet we still think that there's something that we can do. And in trying to fulfill the will of God, with honestly, with a pure heart, we train wreck the mission because we put our own humanness into that mission. It is very, very significant the way that Paul builds all the way to this moment here in Romans. Beginning in 1, 18 through 25, he tells us humanity has forever been exchanging the truth about God for a lie. We've always been subtly convincing ourselves, we can do it better than you, God. We can do it better than you, God. Then even if God said he would do it, we still need to be the ones to do it. Listen, I really believe that God wants to transform your life. I believe that. I believe he wants to use you. I believe he wants to use you for great, amazing things. But his yoke is easy. His burden is light. And the gospel message has everything to do with what Jesus did for you. Listen, church, the gospel is not change everything and then Jesus will rescue you. No, that is not it. And this is the gospel that so many people think it is. The whole point of the rescue is that you needed to be rescued. Listen, this will sound horrible, but this is the only way I can frame this for you. It is like somebody who's drowning. And we all here, and we're on a boat. And we pull the boat up to him, and we have the, we have the rings, and we have the uh, life jacket. And we, we pull up next to this drowning person, and we say, if you could just learn to swim, we'll throw you the life jacket. We'll pull you into safety. Just learn to swim first. That's how a lot of people think Jesus is. If I can just get my life right, then Jesus will rescue me. No, Jesus rescues you because you cannot get your life right. Jesus rescues you because you are drowning. And the, but the narrative that people buy into about Jesus is that he is sitting there waiting for you to learn to swim so that he can rescue you. That is disgusting. And we need to reframe that for people. When you realize Abraham was declared righteous without changing a thing, you realize maybe there's hope for me too. 
And you real, when you realize that even after Abraham was declared righteous, he still didn't always act righteous, you realize, okay, there's definitely hope for me too. It's not about merit. It's not about you and I doing something to earn something. As we close, there's something very significant that we have to catch. Uh, when, when Paul talks about faith, especially uh, at the end of three and into four, he he pairs it against boasting. In 327, he does it. In 4.2, he does it. Uh, He he pairs it with boasting. He says, well, what becomes of our boasting? It's, it's, It's excluded. It's left at the door. We get rid of it. It doesn't do any good. Boasting comes by the law and in whether you can keep the law or you can't keep the law. Then in 4.2, he says, if Abraham had been justified in works, then Abraham would have a reason to boast. But he wasn't. Therefore, he doesn't. See, boasting in those times, it was not so much bragging the way that you and I think of it today. It was more of a way to build yourself up. So uh, before an army would go into a great battle, they first would get together and they would boast. They would build each other up thinking, we can do this. We can do this. We can win this battle, right? It's like hype. One of the best examples of this is uh, Judges 7 in the story of Gideon. Gideon has built this fantastic army, thousands of people, and uh, 30-some thousand people. And they were ready for battle, but God keeps doing things to cut down that army and dwindle it in number before the battle. And when God gives his reason for doing this, the answer is this. He says that they may never have a reason to boast, saying, we won the battle, saying, my own hand has saved me. So the army starts with 32,000. And 32,000 is a fighting chance to win a battle. But before the battle even happened, God intentionally brought that army down to 300 men and he told them to go to battle without weapons. That is insanity. That is impossible. But do you think when that battle was over, those 300 victorious men, when they won, were like, my own hand has saved me. What a great God. It had to be a miracle. And it's the same with Abraham. And Paul says, if Abraham had a reason to boast, then none of this would work. God had to choose Abraham. He had to choose someone who tried to have kids but failed and tried again and then failed. He had to choose someone who was going to keep messing up, who was the least likely to be someone great because only then would it be God. We believe here in this church in the God who still does miracles. You know, this week for me, it was a definite, there was definitely a good chunk of time when I'm looking at my life and, you know, I'm looking at our family, I'm looking at our church and I'm thinking about all the things that God has put in our hearts to do. And sort of the roller coaster that our lives have been from the moment that we heard God say, Go! Go to Detroit. This is where I have you. This is what I have for you. This is what I have for you to do. You know, many of you know much of our story. And you know, it's not always been easy, but you know that we love this place. And we love the people that God has called us to. Enough that we have chosen to dream just absolutely huge for what we believe that God can do here. And this may sound horrible, but for a very long time, 
a part of me actually believed that we would be able to do it. But now I know it has to be a miracle. Whatever happens, God's going to have to do it. And of course, each and every day, I still fall back in my own strength. I look in the mirror. I'm like, you can do this. You can do this. I try to build myself up. I can do something to make the church grow. I can fix other people. I can make that person see what I see. I can make up for the mess that I caused when I opened my big mouth when I should have been silent. I can do it. I can raise the money for the projects. I can earn the money to pay the bills. I can do a better job with my kids. I can do a better job with my marriage. I can solve this. I can solve that. I'm strong enough. But each and every day, I am ultimately ultimately reminded that I am not strong enough. And if it is God, then let it be God's. Because if it's God's, it will happen. And if it's not, you will just spend your whole life and all of your energy, quite frankly, slowly killing yourself in all the areas that God is not in anyway. And when we force things with the human framework and we do it in our own way, we don't, and we don't let God be God, what we end up is that place that Abraham and Sarah and Hagar found themselves in. We end up with broken hearts and broken relationships, with bitter Sarah and outcast Hagar, with two sons who would battle for generations, centuries, even to this day. Heartbreak, both sides. Destruction, both sides. War is no respecter of persons, and it has been going on since that day. And it just keeps going. And what that moment did to Sarah, I want us to catch this. What that moment did to Sarah and what that moment did to Hagar and the damage that was caused all around by the fact that the human mind can never comprehend the glory of God and to actually believe God can do whatever he says that he will do. So we try to work and make sense of what God has said. If you read about this in Genesis, you see Sarah went along with that plan. She was a part of that plan, but it absolutely devastated her. She was crushed by the results. She became bitter. Her joy was sucked completely from her for a very long time, but she was given an amazing promise. Her joy was sucked from her, which only added fuel to the fire when she's in this intermediate time of waiting for that promise to happen. And now she has this bitterness in her heart to deal with on top of the doubt, on top of the wondering, is any of this going to happen? On top of the hurt that she felt of a lifetime of barrenness and disappointment, We never make it better when we take things into our own hands. Never. And yet, even though Abraham screwed up, God still showed up because he made a promise. And God's promises are bigger than our mistakes. And that's what I take away from this passage. God just needs our faith. He'll he'll use anyone. He doesn't need us to change who we are for him to use us. He just needs us to believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he said that he will do in our lives. And what he's promised to do is redeem us, to put us back, to meet us right where we are, even though we didn't keep our end of the covenant. God has promised to be faithful, and he will be.